Hi, I'm Jennifer Ackerman Haywood, and you're listening to the Craft Sanity Podcast. This show is all about art, craft, and creativity, and I produce it weekly in the hope that it will help all of us live long and crafty lives. Hello, everyone. I hope you're managing to stay cool. Here in the Midwest, the heat wave has been absolutely relentless, and as luck would have it, on the hottest day ever in Michigan, I somehow end up uh, sniffling at my desk, leaking like a faucet, battling this ridiculous cold that came from I don't even know where, maybe being cooped up in air conditioning, I don't know, but I'm just so glad I have air conditioning. So anyway, I just want to apologize for the frog voice in advance. I'm getting better, but still sound a little froggish. Now's the time to pour yourself a glass of lemonade, and let's distract yourself from this ungodly weather for just a little while and head off to a cool and crafty, happy place in our imaginations where we're going to chill out for a while with Debbie Stoller. Many of you don't need much help here, so I'm going to keep this introduction short. Debbie Stoller is 46 and lives in New York. She's the co-creator of Bust Magazine and author of the series of Stitch and Bitch books that have inspired thousands to dig out their needles and start knitting and crocheting again, or to learn for the first time. Many of you are probably familiar with her wildly popular knitting book, Stitch and Bitch Nation, that was recently joined on your local bookstore shelf by her latest crafty publication, Stitch and Bitch Crochet, The Happy Hooker. Debbie has some impressive credentials to go along with publications to her name. Today, you're going to hear from her and how she made her way from a typist at Nickelodeon to become an indie publisher who helped grow Bust from a stapled-together zine that she and her friends put together after work to the smart and sassy and glossy magazine you can find today at your local newsstand. And of course, we're also going to talk about crafts. I mean, that's what this show's all about, so we won't let you down there either. So let's get to that interview, and I'm going to get a drink of water. <laughs> I'm so sorry about the voice, guys. Maybe this is a good place to pick up. Can you kind of tell me how education kind of springboarded into Bust and, and all the cool stuff you're doing now? I've always been interested in feminism. Like, I'm a child of... I was a second-wave feminist when I was, like, eight, right? I, I, I was born in 62, and in the 70s, when I was, like, old enough to sort of understand things, all this feminism stuff was exploding, and I thought it was really interesting and important. And even from the way I was... Living, I, I grew up in a pretty traditional household. I had a stay-at-home mom and a working dad, and my father really ruled the house. I was totally the dominant one, and my mom was very submissive, but did a lot of work and did a lot of really beautiful quality work. I mean, she she enjoyed her role as a housewife. She she's from Holland. I spent a lot of time in Holland growing up, and in Holland they really appreciate the home. It's very important in their culture. So, women there, I don't think were ever as dissatisfied with the role of housewife as women in America were because it was something that everybody really respected. Um, Keeping a home nice was like just as important a part of life as bringing home a paycheck. But that wasn't really true in America in any way. I was always felt very sensitive to all of those issues and felt like why was my mom being looked down on in this culture when, you know, the work that she did was so awesome and fantastic and important and she sewed all of our clothes and she was very talented needlewoman and So I was always interested in that stuff through junior high school and high school. And in college, I kind of minored in women's studies, but I ended up majoring in computer science and psychobiology. And then I graduated, like, very fast. And then I went off to to live in Holland for half a year. And then I got into graduate school on full scholarship to go do a Ph.D., which was, was originally supposed to be in a hardcore science. I was studying psychobiology, so I was actually researching leeches. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, learning all about their neurons and the neurological basis of learning and memory, which was very interesting and a wonderful intellectual puzzle. But I was also still interested in all of the other things, especially women's studies and feminism. And that was really booming in the 80s. There was great work being done. And so I was taking all these other classes outside of my department. And after a number of years, after getting my master's in psychobiology, I realized that I just was too interested in these other things, and I would never be able to work them into my science degree. And so I switched 
my area of concentration in the department to psychology of women, which didn't really exist. Me, I had a best friend. The two of us were both really interested in that. We sort of created a psychology of women department together. And I ended up doing my dissertation about, and this is like old hat now, but back then when I was doing this work, it was still kind of, nobody was really doing it yet. I did my dissertation about how different types of images of women in the media influence women's perceptions of themselves. And what year was that when you were working on? Well, I, I got out of, I, did, I graduated in 89, oh, when I was 26. So, okay. So like, you know, the late 80s. You were part of that first wave. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because at the time, it was an old hat, you know. Right. <laughs> yeah. People, and, and my, even my professors didn't really understand why would I study, the, you know. But um, anyway, my results were inconclusive, but I had done all this work on how the media really f***s with women's heads and what a profound influence it has on women's perceptions of perception of herself. And when I got out of school, instead of um, going on and teaching other people about how the media f***s with women's heads, I wanted to go out and see if I could try to make different media, taking what I learned and make some stuff that could maybe be more helpful for women. Anyway, that's the story of how I got the PhD. Yeah, and so <laughs> so was Bust um, what you started creating right away? No, I, I when I first came out, I ended up going and working at MTV and Nickelodeon because I thought those were kind of cool young media companies, and I didn't walk in and say, hey, I have a PhD and you should give me a fancy job. I just walked in and said, hey, I can type. Can I start at the bottom here somewhere? And I did. I got into the typing pool and I worked at, did some stuff at MTV and at Nickelodeon. I was just sort of seeing how things were going and seeing if I could find a place to have an influence. And then while I was there, I kept getting promoted and promoted and my old computer skills came back and I ended up becoming a multimedia producer there and worked on their, I was like their first, whatever. I just kept sort of getting promoted. But after the first few years of being there, I'd met some other girls and we were all a little bit similar minded, a little bit edgy kind of feminist to indie rock or whatever was going on in the 90s. And I was very intrigued by things that were happening with Riot Girl, And that's when the idea for Bust kind of came about. Like, we really need to make a magazine that's kind of cool and smart and reflects everything that's going on around us, a place where we can really be honest and discuss all of our ambivalence about everything, a magazine where we don't have to shove it full of positive role models as a feminist magazine, but just be about the truth, because everything that was out there seemed to be so misleading. And we thought, I mean, this was before Sex in the City. This was before Bridget Jones. I mean, women's lives were really changing, and nothing about that was reflected in any women's magazine or any other cultural outlet. You know, women weren't going from college to getting married and having kids and worrying about an outfit that goes from the office to the after-office party. I mean, (laughs) people's lives were much more complicated and interesting and funny and confused. And we thought it was really, really, really important to have a place where all of that could be known and be made honest and also sort of be a, a sounding board to try to figure out our, what the future of, you know, contemporary womanhood was going to be. And so that became bust, and we just did that as a hobby while we all kept our jobs at Nickelodeon for about six years. Wow, six years. Yeah, we were just doing it as a hobby. And it was really fun. It was getting a lot of attention. It was totally satisfying and rewarding. So it was like, okay, I had my day job at Nickelodeon, which was fun, but... I would get to go home at night and work on this thing that I felt like really counted, and that was that was really great. I always recommend to people if they're looking to start some other business to make sure you have a job that doesn't take too much out of you. Don't go and, you know, if you want to do something in a creative field, don't go and get a creative job. Like, get a job where you can leave at the end of the day and then go home and have energy left over for what you are really passionate about. That's good advice. Yeah, so that was that was good. I mean, we worked on it every night. We worked on it all weekend. So you put you put pretty much all your free time into yeah. this publication. Yeah. yeah, we put all our free time into the getting this magazine out, and um, we used to call it a tri-quarterly because we tried to be quarterly. Uh. <laughs> but it came out very regularly. It came out whenever we could put it together. Yeah. But it was fun, and it, and we even got some press, and we got some recognition, and all of that really kept us going and making us feel. And we, you know, we get letters from people saying that they really enjoyed it. And as we did this magazine, for me, like. Um, Well, I think of feminism as like a big cultural puzzle. I'm really a cultural feminist. I feel like the things, the aspects that make women's lives feel unfulfilling or unequal have very much to do with our cultural values and beliefs. And that um, in order to change and improve women's lives, we have to change the culture at large. 
and change the way we think of things and talk about things and view things. And so, um, so for me, trying to make a difference in feminism through a magazine was a pretty direct route to try to make a change. Um, and the other thing is, as I think about this puzzle, as the years go on, I often come up with different solutions to certain issues because you sort of see how things play out in the culture, and then you're like, huh, actually, that doesn't really work. Maybe something like this has to happen. So over the years of BUST, we've worked through various subjects that were obs we were obsessed with. We spent a lot of time thinking and writing about sex in the beginning and sexual double standard, and then eventually that became... Um, less interesting to us, and we were spending a lot of time writing and thinking about the subject of girlhood and what girlhood really meant and could mean and how it had been viewed and how it should be viewed. And then we spent a lot of time writing and thinking about feminine display, you know, whether whether there was room in feminism for lip gloss, you know, that was a big subject in the 90s, <laughs> because we felt that there was and that there was a different way that this needed to be looked at and that one of the problems with certain types of ideas in feminism was to constantly look down on and belittle everything that had always been associated with womanhood as though those things were oppressive in and of themselves. And we thought looking at a culture where there's transsexuals and transvestites and RuPaul, you really had to take a different look at what feminine display meant and how it could possibly be how it could possibly be a choice for people. And um and then after that, by the late nineties I started getting obsessed with this idea of women's domestic work and all of the things associated with with the home, all of those things that I'd always been raised thinking were so important and that the culture around me sort of always belittled. <clears throat> and that included needlework and knitting and housekeeping and child rearing and all of those things that never really had been considered very feminist but that I felt required some new a new approach. Had you been crafting all along, all throughout this time? I grew up doing all of those crafts. I learned how to sew when I was really little on a sewing machine with patterns. I was always surrounded by that stuff, and I have wonderful memories of sitting around in the evenings, you know, doing cross-stitch. I mean, this is just, you know, some kids are raised with fun camping trips, and some kids are raised enjoying going out and playing softball. I didn't do any of that. My fondest memories from childhood are doing needle crafts with my mom and with my relatives in Holland. It was just a wonderful, wonderful way to connect, and it was just so satisfying to do those things. But over the years, believe me, nobody else that I knew ever thought that those things were cool. And especially, you know, as a feminist, that was just not, it was always, it was looked down on. It was silly. It was, and I didn't like that because the Dutch culture that I came from really respected it, but the American culture that I lived in really didn't. No, so not at all. I was all. a little bit of a closet crafter, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Nobody could really understand why this was pleasurable to me. But things started. there started to be a little bit of a cultural shift in America in the late 90s. I think one person who was important to that was Martha Stewart, who really started to present domestic pleasures in a completely different way than they'd been presented in America before. And her may, way of doing it was very convincing and sold a lot of people on the idea that keeping a nice house or embroidering linen table, you know, napkins or uh, wearing a flowery apron could be something that you would do not to make yourself into the perfect little housewife to please your husband or to please your children. Because in Martha's world, there never were any husbands or children. There was just her. These things was presented as something that you could do because it could be pleasurable, a pleasurable way to spend your time. It could be pleasurable just for yourself, just a way to enrich your life. And that's the way that I had always learned those things, too. So I started to think, we should really start to do some needle crafts and bust. Like, let's just throw something in there, because I really want our readers to, I don't know, maybe get some pleasure out of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And we ran our first craft project in bust in 1999. It was a crocheted headscarf. What kind of response did you get? Nothing. You know, people just bought it. I mean... <laughs> Um, I don't know how many people made the headscarf, but it was yeah. a very cute layout. And I mean, I remember there was when I was in when I was living in Holland. You know, the the girls, the women's magazines, the fun magazines, would always have like a knitting pattern in them or something. There was just no sense that this is not something that you, as a young woman, would be. You know, that you why wouldn't you do that? That would be just as fun, just the same way that you would maybe have a recipe or something. Um, and the layout was cute, and this really hip girl had given us this pattern, and. Um, 
I don't know. You know, over the years, there's definitely been some women who felt and still feel that this whole crafting thing isn't feminist and that this is just, oh, there's a war going on and we shouldn't be thinking about knitting and we should. But I, I think in the larger picture for women, the more we come to respect these things that women have done for centuries, the better our view of women and the whole sphere of domestic work is, and that's important. And that's why I think that Boss has made a huge contribution, um, because it might not have seemed as like that big of a deal in 1999 to put that headscarf pattern in, but you guys kept with that, you know. Right, and by 2001, we did a whole issue called Home Girls, and that was really a breakthrough issue. It was just all about domestic stuff. Jean Rayla wrote a long essay for us. I'd been friends with her for a long time in the East Village, and we'd also been spending a lot of time talking about crafting and this new crafting for years, even before she published that article. And then that article that she wrote, I asked her to write an article about it because I knew she had a lot of thoughts on it, and then that spun off into her book, uh, Get Crafty. Which is very popular. Yeah, and we had, you know, it was um, it was just a good issue that really tried to take a whole new look on this stuff. We had a little section in the back that was called A Bad Girl's Guide to Good Housekeeping, and it had everything from recipes to cleaning tips to just all different kinds of stuff to kind of... I don't know, present this, this this work and this history in a in a proud and valuable form. And like it was cool. I mean it's not so much that I'm I'm really not that interested in cool. Cool doesn't really mean very much to me. But I wanted to present it in a way that made it look like like worthy of your time. Like valuable and valid. And cool helps, right? I guess it does. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> if you're like, yeah, I mean, this kind of sucks, but you should try it, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, do you, why do you think people want so badly to separate feminism and crafts? Why, why is that? Cause it why seems do they like, want to separate Yeah, it? why? Cause there's, you know, the peop- there are people out there, you know, as you mentioned earlier, that there are some people that consider themselves like the hardcore feminists. And it's even right. hard to define what hardcore feminists even yeah. mean since everyone has their own definition. But Right, because, I mean, Jean and I are hardcore feminists, and we completely think that there's a very strong connection between crafting and feminism. And I think, I know Vicki Howell is also. So I know there's a lot of us out there who see a very strong and important connection but I think a lot of people feel that the work that women did when they were restricted to just working in the private sphere of the home was oppressive and not as important as working outside of the home in the public sphere. And I think it maybe wasn't fair to restrict people to their various roles depending on their sex because maybe there's men who are much more nurturing than certain women and certain women who are probably much more ambitious than certain men. And I think that people maybe should have should be able to take their roles in the home depending on what their personal qualities, what qualities, they're, which role they're better suited to. But the problem is I think that it's a mistake to undervalue what that role was that women played. I think that's what the culture always did, and I think that that's really why those women were so dissatisfied, that by the 70s people just looked down on that housework. That was just always kind of thought of as just something silly, easy, something that anybody could do. So who would want to do it? It's not satisfying to do work that isn't respected or valued by the culture. But in the, in the 50s and the 60s, people like, like Betty Friedan wrote about how that work was dissatisfying, I think because she thought it was inherently unsatisfying. You know, she said very famously in one of her books, there's some scene of like a woman lying in bed at night with her husband, maybe after having fed her children peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for lunch on a day of housework and lying in bed and thinking, is that all there is? Mm-hmm. But I don't think she could flip it and imagine the single working woman like myself who after a full day of working on bus magazine goes home to an empty house eats a bowl of cereal and lies in bed and also thinks is that all there is i don't think she could have pictured i don't think she could have pictured that i don't think she could have pictured that there are in both the public roles and in the private roles there are lack you know oh yeah i think lacks each of them has pluses and minuses and sure well, yeah, that's the thing is all of us have something else we would like, you know. Yeah. And and I think the, the whole thing with, um, you know, the crafting, it seems to have skipped a generation in a way. Um, I know I'm 29 uh-huh. and, and I kind of came into it, you know, crafting since about age five. And, right. and my mom did some crafts, but um, uh-huh. not nearly as much as I do. And a lot of, you know, um, people that I've connected with um, seem to do and the you know, women in their twenties, the 20 to, to 40 something, you know, seems right. to be huge. But, um, 
you know, I, I don't think I would have liked crafting if someone said, mm-hmm. hey, go home and craft if I'm uh, out trying to play sports with the guys, you know. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so it's great to be able to choose now. Right, right. And I, and I think it also makes a difference that uh, the, 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 the important cultural thing is that, like, you know, people think that girls going out and playing soccer is so great. And it is great, being that they were kept from it. But it's important to realize that there isn't anything inherently more valuable in spending your time playing soccer than there would be in spending your time sitting with your grandma learning to knit. Right. I think that people think that there is, though. You know, playing soccer and doing those things, those are great, robust, I don't know, you know, but mostly I think it just ends up being a culture that always values what men have done and undervalues what women have done. And as a feminist, to me, it's important to try to change that. It seems like you've seen some real progress, though. With I'm so, so excited to see how popular crafting has become over the past six or seven years. It's such a thrill to me. I feel like, ah, finally, everybody's seeing it my way. <laughs> like, not because, of, not because of me, but just, like, finally, everybody sees, like, yes, this is what I've been feeling all along. This is really fun, satisfying stuff to do. It's really exciting. And... um you know, I just, I just, I just love it. I, I, I love that that this is happening, and I think it's so cool and so fun. And I, and I also do feel like some of the things that were important to me about it that you know we would come to respect, uh, you know, things about women's work and stuff are, are really happening. A lot of people don't think of. You know, if, if you think of like the stereotype of you know someone who goes and gets a PhD in mm-hmm. the psychology of women, mm-hmm. and to see you crafting is so great because mm-hmm. I think it contradicts the view a lot of people have mm-hmm. of what a feminist is. And right. I and I want to take a moment here. Can you define what does feminism mean to you? Oh, I just have a really simple definition. I guess it's just that I think that men and women are of are should be seen as being of equal value, and they aren't just yet. So I want to try to change that. But um, I think that, you know, what what constitutes them being of equal value or, like, I think people have a lot of different ideas about that. And, um, you know, I'm open to, you know, arguments and discussions about it. I mean, some people think that there, you can't have feminism in a capitalist society and that, you know, if, if you're selling things, that's not feminist. Or if you're eating meat, that's not feminist. Or if you're not environmentalist, that's not feminist. And... You know, people have all different ideas about it. I have, I try to stick to, um, like I said, these cultural ideas about men and women and, and how to make them, you know, I still feel like it's mostly it's a world that we view through a male cultural lens. Most cultural products are produced as if the men are the main category of people and women are sort of the garnish. <laughs> and I, I want a society where we're all seen as central characters to this world. I don't think that we are. And I think that the culture that we produce has a, has a really profound influence on how we see ourselves in the world. So, Well, and I think women are, in, in general, just tired of being best supporting actress for, like, right. their life. You know, it's like right. we, want a, we want the lead, you know, right. or at least to be a co-lead, you know. Right. So. And I just, you know, I want more variety. I want where's the female, you know, Adam Sandler? Where's the female Jack Black, for God's sakes? Uh, and then yeah. I think about that movie... What was that movie that came out years ago with Jack Black and Gwyneth Paltrow? And, like, he, she's really fat, but when he sees her, she, he has some strange oh, disorder. Oh, so yeah. he sees her as yep. being beautiful. Shallow Hal, right? Shallow Hal, yes. And, but the movie never bothered, bothered to explain, like, what, what kind of strange disorder did she have that she could look at him and want to go to bed with him? <laughs> He's Jack Black. <laughs> right. He is really fat right. and unattractive. It, you like, know, why, why wasn't that, why did that need no explanation? And she's f***ing <laughs> Gwyneth Paltrow. So. I know. <laughs> You know, that was like, this is these these logic, these problems of logic. (laughs) But the thing is, uh, Popcorn America just kind of like soaks it right up. You know what I mean? And people don't really question these things. And then if you do, they kind of look at you like, geez, can't you just leave it alone and be happy? You know, Uh (laughs) enjoy the movie, you know, pass the popcorn. My Uh goodness. Well, getting back to your point about, you know, men and women, you just want, you know, all of us to be perceived as equals. I think the people in the craft world that really have a hard time right now are the men who craft because it's not seen as manly at all. And, you know, well, well no, it's, it's there. There's, you know, it's not seen as manly. And the reason it's not seen as manly is because it's seen as womanly and things that women do have stigma attached to them. So the men have to fight a stigma when they go to knit because they're doing something that women traditionally do. And things that women traditionally do are beneath men. See, women wouldn't have 
even though a woman might be thought of as a little butch, if she would decide to go do carpentry or blowtorch or something like that, right. she wouldn't be fighting the negative stigma that doing that kind of work is beneath a woman. But men do. And that's, um, I'm totally excited to see more men crafting. I think it's important. I think the more we as a culture come to value all of these needle crafts and the women's traditions of crafts, um, and the more men do it, the more it shows that the stigma is fading away. But um, I, I think I've said some things about this that I think have been misunderstood. I, I don't think that uh, knitting is inherently female. I don't think that there's any reason why men can't do it. I even know that in the history of knitting, there's a good amount of evidence, although there's conflicting evidence, that knitting was once the sole domain of men. Nevertheless, knitting has a stigma, and the stigma that's attached to it has nothing to do with the fact that it was once done by men. The stigma is attached to it because it's something that women have done for hundreds of years and it's associated with women and old ladies. And women and old ladies are not something you want to be associated with if you're a man or even apparently if you're a woman. So I um, I mean, people adore, you know, women adore it when men knit. Oh, I think it's fabulous. <laughs> but they're fighting the stigma of, of it being associated with women and, and men aren't supposed to do womanly things because womanly things are worse than man things. They're beneath, they're supposed to be beneath men. Well, I, I really hope that, that people can just grow more accepting of men doing needle art. But it was very interesting. I wanted to do an article about men doing knitting and needle crafts and the kind of issues they face um, in an issue of Bust. And the writer and other people who heard about the story kept suggesting male artists. Oh, you're going to do that? Then you should talk to this guy. He's an artist and he works with yarn in his art museum pieces. And I was like, no. <laughs> Just because I'm writing about men doesn't mean it all of a sudden has to be elevated to art. Like, right, I want to talk right. about the men who are crafting like after work. the same way we would talk about the women who craft. It was like all of a sudden, because some men were associated with it, it had to become something above, you know, something more intellectualized. And I really had to keep saying, no, no, I just want you to talk to the men who are, who are crafters. I think knitting and needle craft is completely valuable as a craft. Sometimes I feel like elevating it to art, it's great that some people do that, and for some people it probably really is an art form, and they really express themselves through it, and that's fantastic. But already that makes it into a whole different thing. It's no longer work that someone does. It's no longer a skill. It's an expression. It's more abstract. It's, again, more in the public domain. It's more masculine and therefore more valued. I really want these things to be valued as a skill, as a craft, and they deserve to be. And like I say, you know, for, for some people it really is. For me, knitting is not an art. I don't express myself with it. I enjoy it. I get a lot of pleasure from it. I like to become, to try to become as skilled a craftswoman as I can. And I love trying to help people understand it. I'm always questioning it and trying to understand the structure of it and see through it and understand, you know, it's like a science project. It's like if you have a science mind at all, you're always thinking like that. Um, but it's not... For me, it's not art, and that's a, that I think it deserves to be respected as a craft on its own. And then plus, okay, it's awesome. People who want to do art with it, that's great. But I think it, even not as art, it deserves respect. Right. You shouldn't have to be doing an installation in a gallery to be respected. I think it would be great if we live in a world where a guy knitting on the subway is not going to be a spectacle. Right. Because right now a woman can get away with that. I mean, it's people might, you know, kind of ask you what you're making or whatever, but I've talked to men who feel like, I mean, one guy is really accomplished uh, he, at crocheting, and mm -hmm. he, he seemed to be, he's like, I said, oh, so do you take your work around with you? And he said, well, you know, not really. I usually just work in, in my house. And I'm like, right. oh, well, that's really sad because, you know, sometimes it's nice outside and you want to take your work outside and, you know, and he just feels like, you know, he doesn't want to be a spectacle, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. and that's really sad that he right. can't just go outside and, you know, soak soak up the rays like the rest of us can, you know. Yes. So yes. anyway, well, Bust Magazine will keep working on that. Yes. And I'll do what I can with my little show here. Um, <laughs> now you are, you know, it's like Debbie Stoller and Stitch and Bitch are almost like you have to say both, you know, in the craft world. People know that's how they know you. Had, every time I'd go to Holland and see my relatives, I'd think, you know, I, I would really like to knit. And even though I've done all these different needle crafts in my whole life, knitting was the thing that I just could not stand. It never felt comfortable in my hands. And you know, I come from this long line of knitters, and my grandmother has been knitting since for, for about 90 years of her life. You know, I, I just could not get the swing of it. But whenever I see people doing it, I think, wow, I would really like to do that. Anyway, we came out with a book that was based on bust. I guess that was around 1999. I went on a 
book tour with that book, and I don't like to fly, so I did, took a three-day train trip from New York to Portland, and I grabbed this half-finished sweater with me that I had picked up. Oh, I must have been working on it for three years. Totally <laughs> simple, big, chunky yarn sweater. But I'm like, I've got three days on this train. Maybe I'll finally make some progress on this sweater. I kind of hated working on it. And um, I brought this little knitting primer because, of course, every time I'd pick up that thing, I'd have to reteach myself all over again how to knit. And for some reason, on that train, all of a sudden, it all kicked in. Like, I just sort of tucked my knitting needle under my armpit, which made it much more... I'd never really done that before. Apparently, that's why my grandmother did it, too. And that just turned out to be, like, a much more comfortable way to do it. And everything just started to flow. And... By the time I got to Portland, that sweater was all of a sudden done, and I was totally addicted. And so while I was on the book tour, I bought more and more books about knitting and bought more yarn. And when I came back to New York, I thought, you know, I'm going to try to see uh, people. Sometimes when people would ask, you know, would find out that I was into knitting, they'd be like, oh, can you teach me too? And I knew, like, maybe two other people who knew how to knit. And I thought, well, let's, let's get together, you know, once a week at a cafe, and we can knit together, and those of you who want to learn to knit, I'll be happy to teach you. And those of you who already know how to knit, I'll be happy to learn some stuff from you. <laughs> and then we can share this a little bit. And I decided that we would call that Stitch and Bitch because I knew that that name had been around since at least the 40s as a name for women sewing and crafting and knitting circles. And I thought it was kind of funny. I, I read about it in a book about the cultural history of, of knitting that I picked up like very soon after I got obsessed with knitting called No Idle Hands. So I thought that was a funny name. I also had a friend who, she had some friends who had a Stitch and Bitch group from years back, so we called it that. And I started to write about it in Bus Magazine that year, which was like 2000. And I would always put in, whenever I'd write about knitting stuff in Bus, I would always say, you know, sign up for Debbie's New York City Stitch and Bitch group and write to this email. And um, and that group was fun. It was about 20 people a week. We'd get together in a cafe. And um, then a girl, Brenda Janish, who lives in Chicago, noticed that in Bust Magazine, and she she was getting back into knitting, too, and she thought, well, that sounds like a fun idea, so she started a group in Chicago, and our group started to get some press, even though it was only 2000, so knitting wasn't quite back up and swing yet, but people liked the idea that young women were getting together at night in a cafe and knitting, so they were giving us, we were getting some press, and um, Vicki Howell, host of Nitty Gritty now, she was living in uh, Los Angeles at the time, and she also read Bust. She's a young, interesting feminist, and she also read about the Stitch and Bitch groups, and because by then I had written about Brenda's group as well, because they were right away making really cute t-shirts and stuff. So she started one in Los Angeles, and then when she moved to Austin, she started one there, and they got some press too. And then eventually Workman Publishing <clears throat> asked me to write a knitting book, because they saw how much I was writing about knitting in Bust. One of the editors there did. And I, st I was very excited to do that because by then I had taught so many people to knit and I felt like I really knew what these new knitters were looking for, and what kind of patterns they wanted and what they needed to know. Um, and then we decided to call the book Stitch and Bitch because I thought that was a fun name. And I, then when that book came out, that got a lot of press. So, I mean, the idea of a Stitch and Bitch is just so easy that if you knit at all and it's interesting, it's so easy to start one that it just kind of caught on really organically as people you know, all you really need to do is find out about it, and then you can do it. Right, right, and just so show up in the same place. there's hundreds of them now, and there's even many, many overseas. I get an email from a Stitch and Bitch in South Africa. There's going to be a big Stitch and Bitch day in Holland in November. They have about 16 groups now. It's it's great. I, I, I think that um, knitting and socializing is something that does go together really well. And, um, you know... It's totally, it's a totally fun thing. I'm just, I'm glad it, people tell me sometimes that their stitch and bitch groups really made a difference in their lives. You know, sometimes people would move to a town and didn't really know how to find any female friends and they would hook up with a stitch and bitch and meet people. So it's been valuable, you know, in a variety of ways. Well, do you care at all to talk about the controversy? Because I know I had signed up for a local stitch and bitch um, and not long after I signed up for the the Yahoo group, I got the email about the um demand that a certain company was making to have um, everybody abandon the Stitch and Bitch name. That company made some claims to having the rights to p the way people would use Stitch and Bitch online, but I'm, I've am i been fighting that because people have been calling their group Stitch and Bitch for, for decades, and she never should have been given that. Um, I, my, my, my claim is that it was, um, she was given that trademark, um, that it, that was a mistake because uh, you really, it, 
name's been around for a long time, and you can't just keep people from using it, whether they're, when they want to use it, whether they're meeting in real life or whether they're discussing things online. So and where, a, where is that right now? Uh, is that know, settled we're, yet? Or? We're trying to come to an amicable okay. arrangement about it. It's, okay. been very, it's been a very unfortunate thing for both parties and very stressful and I think we would both like it to end. Yeah, well, I think everybody else would too and yes, I, of I course. just I just didn't want to um, cuz I think a lot of people that listen to the show and and craft would be like, "Oh, what about what's the latest with the right. controversy?" and so I don't need to we don't need to spend time on it, no. but I did want to address with it. legal things, it's better to just work on stuff behind the scenes. Yeah, no, I understand. Not no problem. Put things more out there that Yeah, so it sounds like you're yeah. still you're still working on that. We're working on but it. you're hoping I think it's going to all be fine very Okay. Well, that's good news. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, let's move on to, uh, so you got such a great response from your knitting book. It's a great book, The Stitch and Bitch Nation, and, and your other, um, you have, I think you had three, three books before The Happy Hooker. Is that correct? Well, I had, I had Stitch and Bitch, and the, the Stitch and Bitch Nation, and then I had a journal. Okay. Okay. So this I would be your third, book. yeah, The Happy mm -hmm. Hooker. And this is fabulous too. I've already Thanks. made a couple things out oh, of it. Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah, I um, I learned to crochet um, back when I was um, four or five, and uh -huh. and um, then I kind of you know would only make things that were like rectangles, like uh, right. <laughs> or or like um, afghans. But um, recently, you know, got back into it in my twenties and and have been making a lot more challenging things. And yeah. there's fun patterns, and I like reading about the people who contributed. That's oh. really cool, too. Yeah, there's so many amazing women that contributed. I'm so lucky with all that, so happy. So when, after you mastered knitting, and uh, you got back to uh, the crocheting, then, because mm -hmm. it sounds like that's what you did first. That's what you Well, learned. I always kind of did both of them. Yeah. Um, and I always was sort of, knit. I mean, I, I've always been bicraftual. In fact, even, you know, <laughs> multicraftual. I never... I, you know, I told you I sew and I embroider and I, I never really met a needle craft I don't like. And when I, when I come across a needle craft that I've never done, I'm always very curious to do it. But I, I learned to crochet when I was little. Um, I did really get obsessed with knitting once that picked up. Um, but I would still like to crochet in the summertime because that's kind of easier to do on the beach. And it's nicer done with cotton. And sometimes I just want to do like a palette cleanser after a whole bunch of knitting than work up a couple of crochet projects. There's some things that are just better to do in crochet and other things that are better to do in knitting. And I prefer to, I like to know both and do the thing that's right, you know, do the thing that is best with whatever craft it requires. But I felt like, um, you know, people who had started knitting maybe five years ago were developing all kinds of skills. And I think they were starting to get ready to branch out into even more skills, like including crochet. And then people who'd been crocheting for a while um, I think we're feeling a little bit like the red-headed stepchild of knitters, and, and, and they weren't getting as interesting patterns as knitters were getting, and I don't think people were realizing, some people were realizing like what crochet was really capable of, that it wasn't just sort of like a, a lesser way of making knit things, but that crochet could do its own things. Lace, it was perfectly made for lace, it was beautiful, can make beautiful lacy things and it can work up quite quickly and it can make really beautiful crisp stitches and it can also make awesome sculptural shapes that would be very difficult to do in knitting. So I just thought it'd be really fun to do a great primer for whoever was interested in learning to crochet and really go through all the details and all the things that I felt like I had often, books that I used to learn to myself to myself to crochet from often left out really important things. This was the same thing from when I was trying to learn to knit. And so I thought a crochet book would give me a chance to do what I did in the first knitting book, which was just really put everything out there that a person would need who would be trying to learn from a book and then collect a bunch of awesome patterns that could inspire those who never crocheted or people who already crocheted and were looking for some more interesting projects. And that was the idea of that book. That was a lot of fun to do. And I think the response has been has been been pretty positive which has just been thrilling well and it, it is a great collection of as you said um you know patterns that are hip you know because uh, i think you're right i mean if you go to the store a lot of times you can easily find some really great knitting patterns so they're very hip things but it's hard to find designs as many designs uh, if you crochet right. it's been harder to find uh, more useful designs and you know the thing is especially now you go to the stores for the past year and they're full of beautiful crocheted things but exactly it was very hard to track down patterns for things like that but like I say, the book was a, a way to combine both uh, collection, collecting some patterns to really show some of crochet's strengths and also to give a real 
um, you know, hopefully be the primer that people would want to pick up if they wanted to learn to crochet because I tried to give my give the instructions very thoroughly, as thoroughly as I could, with, you know, some humor because, after all, it's not a life or death. <laughs> right, and it that it's does be fun. it does come through that you wrote this with a, a fun uh, well the kind of the bust personality right. that comes through and it that's fun well, too yeah thanks. so it's not a boring you know you know thing you'd read at a senior center or something uh, of course I'm sure the seniors would really I'm love sure this they book have too some awesome things too yeah they would love this <laughs> too do. yeah not to you know not to stigmatize anybody here right I mean that's the thing people are always like to say about my stuff like. Oh, it's not your grandma's. I mean, from the beginning, they're like, it's not your grandma's knitting. It's not your grandma's knitting. Well, that was probably pretty interesting the first time it was coined, but now it's getting kind well, of Well, that really bothered me because for me, so much of the fact that my grandmother knit is what made me interested in wanting to knit. And it, <laughs> right. And, you know, it is my grandmother's knitting. It's just not necessarily her patterns, and that's all right. You know, the patterns that she was knitting weren't her grandmother's patterns either. I was just trying to bring some more youthful or some more patterns aimed at a bit of a younger knitting audience than what had been available. Right. But I never meant to distance these crafts from our grandmothers. It's because of our grandmothers that I really, I'm really trying to get more respect for our grandmothers, in fact, with all of this. So. And just because our grandmothers didn't have iPods does not mean that, you know, <laughs> this was not, <laughs> that's why they didn't have an iPod, they weren't making iPod cozies because right. they didn't have iPods, right. but they I mean, were stitching. I love, I love the history of knitting and learning all the really traditional things about it, and I love the connection to grandmothers and great-grandmothers that goes with it, so I, I have no, I'm never trying to distance myself from that, in fact, although I often get misinterpreted as doing, trying to make knitting cool or hip, I'm really not. I'm just trying to get younger people to come appreciate um, the beautiful and long tradition of knitting and how interesting and valuable it is. Well, I'm so glad today that you're able to get that message across. And um, the other thing I wanted to just have you chat about a little bit is the crocheting versus knitting. I know you talked a little bit about that, and we talked about the patterns and how the knitting patterns always seem to be a little easier and cooler, to, you know, when you're out there looking for something to make. But how do people... Have have people responded to your book? Because you know they were big fans of Stitch and Bitch Nation, which is on you know the knitting um, focus. And then now they see that you have a crocheting book out. Are they embracing it the same way? Oh well, yeah. No, nobody nobody's seen me as a Benedict Arnold. But <laughs> 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 now I'm working on it. I have a knitting a page a day, a little like ho- holiday gift item that's coming out, and that's all about knitting. Actually, about knitting culture. It's a stitch and bitch page day calendar that's just like a fun thing that sits on your desk and there's some patterns in there and there's stuff about cool yarns and knitting history things. It's just kind of like a little stitch and bitch on your desk. But um, And I'm just getting started on an advanced stitch and bitch book that's going to be knitting, get back to knitting techniques again. But, um, you know, I just, I'm not trying to force anybody into anything. I'm just trying to do books that I'm interested in doing. <laughs> I'm not like, okay, now everybody go crochet. Now everybody go knit again. You know, I'm just well, the fun part is if you know how to do both, you can do some really cool things where yeah, you, know, you can absolutely. knit something That's... up and then crochet a border. And, right. Because uh, I find that a lot easier than knitting borders. I don't know. I just, that's, for me, it's it's a lot of fun to combine Yeah, both. no, absolutely. And I think, you know, the more needle craft skills, the merrier. I think it's all good. And it all, you know, basically what it really comes down to is the pleasure that you get from engaging in something that's, that's quiet and satisfying with fiber and you know a lot of people who are knitting are also getting into spinning now I mean it's all so pleasurable so have you gotten into spinning yet well I live in Brooklyn so I mean I did drop spindling (laughs) oh about four or five years ago I dropped spindled a whole bunch of yarn and I and knit some things out of that but I don't have any room for a Wheel. Well, and then what happens it. when you get a spinning wheel is you start buying all kinds of uh, wool fiber. Right. And well, then, I already have a whole bunch of that stuff. Yeah, <laughs> and it's no spinning wheel. Well, before it's yarn, it takes up a lot more space because I have all of my my basement's full of this stuff, and it's it's really but but spinning is fun. But yeah, you're right; it does take a little more space to do. Um, well, looking back, I mean, at the beginning here, when you were you coming home from your job at Nickelodeon um, and working on this kind of dream at that point of, of making bust uh, what it is today, I mean, did you ever think that um, you would be touring the country and the globe talking about knitting and crocheting and, and running your own publication? And No, I didn't. But whoever does know how things are going to unfold, it's, um, 
you know, it's been, it's very, it's very, very exciting and very fun, and I feel so lucky for the chances I've had to do this. When I go on my book tours, I mean, I just came back from three months of really traveling all over the place. I've never traveled so much in, in only three months in my life. I mean, I've been everywhere, and it is so, so much fun. It's just so much fun to meet all the people who are doing this and the people who enjoy my books and I don't know why people complain about ever going on book tours because there's nothing like going on an all-expense-paid trip to have people come and tell you that they like, that they appreciate what you're doing. It's, you know, it's it's great. So I'm so grateful for the chances I've had, and I'm, and I'm so happy that, um, you know, that my books have been able to help some people get into this craft because it's so much fun, and I'm, you know, and I'm glad that it was able to, you know, get more people into it. I think my grandmother would be proud. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. I really do. Yeah. Well, that's wonderful. And and did you ever think that when you went to when you're pursuing a PhD? Because I think a lot of times people that you know go for a PhD, uh-huh. they plan to teach at some point at a university level. You know what? I never really did. No. <laughs> I when I was doing psychobiology, I thought that would be a good way to travel because I thought like I could do postdocs all over the world, and that would be like a great travel ticket. Um, yeah, no, I, I do love to teach, and I guess I sort of am teaching in different ways. That was one of my favorite part of graduate school was teaching, but I've always, I, I, and I do miss the academic setting sometimes. That was a fun and interesting place to be, and sometimes I wish that I could go back and do a, you know, a history dissertation about the history of needle women's, some aspect of needle women's fiber arts or culture or whatever, but, you know, it is wonderful to, to study all that stuff, but, um no, I guess, I mean, the the one thing that's difficult about everything I'm involved in is that I'm super, super busy. And my struggle is to try to find ways to be able to devote enough time to all my projects without letting any of them suffer. Because there's only so much time in a day, and there's so many things I'd like to do, but I'm really running, like, two different businesses at the same time, and it's very, very stressful. It's very hard to correspond with people as much as I'd like to. You know, people write to me sometimes and never write them back. I mean, it's that's the biggest challenge for me right now is to just try to make sure that everything happens the way that it should and also, you know, manage to have some time to live my life because sometimes I'm just working, 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 working and I just don't even have any life at all and that's, you know, that's crazy. So it seems kind of like the high price of success sometimes. It's <laughs> <laughs> no time to rest. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, no time to craft. Struggles. Exactly, exactly. That's that the hardest the problem, thing. Is trying to find time to do my own trying to find some balance back. Do you have anything on your needles right now? I uh, I have this sweater that's just taking me forever, but right now my finger is still blue, so oh, yes. my knitting finger is, is uh, in, in trouble, so I have to lay off the needles for a while. <laughs> yeah, well, I wish you the best to, to get that, you know, get yourself back in, uh, in fine knitting fashion. Hey, so listen, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you so much, Debbie. I appreciate Great. it. Good luck Thanks. to you. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much to Debbie for chatting with me. When we taped that interview a while back, Debbie was just returning from a book tour in Tuscany. Sadly, she was not feeling very well. But instead of canceling the interview, she was a trooper and went ahead with it, which I really appreciated because it was really great to get a chance to talk to her and bring her interview to all of you. So I hope you enjoyed it. I think Debbie's done a heck of a lot to remind people why We really should celebrate the needle arts our grandmothers and great-grandmothers taught us. I know I recently heard an essay read by a woman who wrote into Brenda Dane's show called Cast On, a podcast for knitters, which I'm sure many of you listen to as well. I wish I could think right now of the the woman's name who wrote in, but she kind of had a beef with some of the younger folks out there who conduct themselves as if they invented knitting and crocheting, these needle arts, and it's like really hip and super cool to be like 20-something and doing these things. And I'm not just saying this because I turned 30 a couple weeks ago, but I guess I'm saying this because I kind of can see where some of that behavior, you know, not your grandma's knitting, that phrase could really irk the grandmas out there that have been knitting and crocheting and doing needle arts. Beautiful work all along. And um, so I kind of just wanted to do a little shout-out for the folks who have come before myself. Thank you to all of you who have been doing this for years and years and passing down your knowledge. I know that some of my fondest memories are of sitting around my great-grandma Case's kitchen table with the elder women in my family learning how to crochet. 
Yeah, I was very young, and they didn't call it stitch and bitch, but that's exactly what it was. The women chatted about their personal lives and the news of the day, price of milk and gas, and you know, there's probably a little gossip too, but you know, that's okay. Nothing particularly mean-spirited. I was really too young to contribute much in the way of stimulating conversation, but I soaked it all up, and I think I knew then that I was part of something very special. I hope someday to be a grandmother myself, hosting a craft night around my kitchen table. If you haven't yet, you might want to take a moment to thank the women and men who stitched before you. It's a priceless gift, really, and it's one that I'm so grateful to have received. I just want to remind you to check out craftsanity.com for links to Debbie's websites, book information, and for a free pattern from her Stitch and Bitch Crochet, The Happy Hooker book. Thanks to Workman Publishing for letting me post that pattern and for donating a copy of the book for the giveaway. Speaking of which, uh, now is the moment you've all been waiting for. The Stitch and Bitch Crochet, The Happy Hooker book is going to Shannon in Las Vegas. Shannon's name was entered into the contest by her best friend, Emily, who was very kind to nominate a friend. And so, Shannon, if you're listening, you have Emily to thank. You're going to love Debbie's book. In addition to it containing a wonderfully written crochet primer, the book is jam-packed with fun patterns to inspire you to take your crocheting to the next level. So enjoy. And I want to remind everyone that the Detroit Urban Craft Fair is Saturday, August 5th at the Majestic Theater in Detroit. I hope to see you there. I'm looking forward to going and meeting not only the organizers, but the cool vendors. So I encourage you to check it out if you are within driving distance or have tons of frequent flyer miles and a crafty mojo (laughs) to buy some art this weekend. Saturday's the day. Okay, everyone, so have a fabulous week. And remember, when times get tough, craft sanity, my friends. It works for me. Thanks for listening to the Craft Sanity Podcast with Jennifer Ackerman Haywood. Visit CraftSanity.com for more information about today's guest and links to subscribing to the podcast. Want to support the show? Follow the link to vote for Craft Sanity on Podcast Alley once a month. You can also make a donation or buy goods at the Craft Sanity store. Have a suggestion for a future guest or have other feedback? Email Jennifer at CraftSanity.com. Thanks again for listening to Craft Sanity.